Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with L.A. Paul. Lori Paul is the Millstone Family Professor of Philosophy and Professor of Cognitive Science at Yale University. Her main research interests are in metaphysics, cognitive science, decision theory, and the philosophy of mind. She's tended to focus on questions about the nature of the self, preference change, subjective value, temporal experience, causation, time, perception, among others. And her most recent book is titled Transformative Experience. And that was really our focus in this conversation. We talk about the nature of transformative experiences, how they change the self that has had the experience, often in ways that can't be understood unless that change occurs. We discuss the nature of regret, changing belief systems, conspiracy thinking, empathy, doing good in the world, our relationship to our future selves, what it might mean to change our values, the nature of possibility, the ethics of punishment, moral luck, the moral landscape, consequentialism, and other topics. Anyway, fascinating territory. I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you L.A. Paul. I am here with L.A. Paul. Lori, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So just we were talking before we started recording here about your name. If people want to find your writing, it is under L.A. Paul, but uh, I will call you Lori. Can you summarize your background as a philosopher? What, what kinds of topics have you focused on? Sure. So I got my PhD in philosophy from Princeton in 1999, uh, working in the area of metaphysics with the philosopher David Lewis. Mm. And um, I love metaphysics. I'm a metaphysician at heart. And I focus on the nature of causation, but I also do a lot of work on time and how we experience ourselves in time and how we understand and manipulate the world around us. And I spent about, I'd say the first half of my career thus far, last sort of 12 years, or the, tw- the first 12 years, focusing on those, on sort of deep metaphysical questions, you know, what, what the, the nature of reality, um, in particular, the kinds of things that you can't sort of directly see, like time and cause, and also the nature of the self. And after, I don't know, sort of exploring those topics for a while, I turned to exploring the way that we understand ourselves in the world. And there's a sort of natural progression there. And started working on, in particular, how we understand ourselves through distinctive kinds of experiences and how, and you sort of use, there's a framework uh, involving decision theory that I t- uh, have often used because if you try to embed these questions in a framework like decision making, all kinds of interesting questions come out. So it's a way of sort of, I don't know, kind of pulling apart something that seems maybe simple on the surface and realizing there's a lot of complexity underneath. Well, I was introduced to your work through what you've you've written and and said on uh, on the topic of what you call transformative experience, um, and I thought we'd focus on that. But I love the connection to David Lewis, and I would love to talk about the nature of possibility and causation and all of the metaphysics there too. I hadn't thought we would talk about that, but that's. Um, did you hear my conversation oh, with Tim Maudlin? I did not, but I uh, I mean, I'm a big fan of Tim's mm-hmm. and. I should say that these co- these topics are intimately related. I'm, I'm working on a book now, actually, that brings out some of those deeper connections. But the topic is the same. Mm-hmm. We can just view it from different perspectives. Great, great. So let's start with the transformative piece. 
and then hit all the metaphysics you might want to touch there. <laughs> I, I think the, yeah, I mean, we'll just, uh, we'll see where we go, but it's, it's all fascinating. So the, this phrase, transformative experience, what do you mean by that? And because uh, I think it's easily misunderstood. So let's mm-hmm. bound the concept. So good question. So I use the phrase transformative experience. In part, you can think of it as, as a bit of a pun on what people ordinarily think of as transformative experience. So the kind of ordinary meaning is some kind of wow, amazingly, you know, change-filled experience. It changes who you are. And I mean that too, but I mean something a little bit maybe more kind of philosophically detailed. I mean that when you face a transformative experience, um, you're facing an experience that at once you can't know in important essential details of what it's going to be like, and also that it is going to change you fundamentally. It's going to destroy some part of the self that you are now and recreate you by you know creating a new self. So there's those two parts. It's yeah. really important that both those yeah. things happen together. So, well, I guess let's ground this in some canonical life decisions that are uh, that tend to be transformative in this way I, you know the, my first thought is something like having kids mm-hmm. you know perhaps you have a, a favorite but um, well, let's talk about some of the details there okay so so you've touched on one of my two favorite examples and so I think that for people who haven't had children when someone becomes a parent that often that really is a transformative experience it's not that everyone has a transformative experience in virtue of like producing and adoption is included here although i often mm. just talk about physically producing a child but the process of attaching to the child which is i think crucial for becoming a parent it's a kind of psychologist will describe this as an identity defining an identity changing attachment relation changes you as a person it changes in the way that i said before the self that you are and I think many people, before they become parents, or if they're deliberating or maybe agonizing or ruminating about, well, maybe they'll become a parent, they know, you know, something dramatic and big is going to happen to them. And they know in essentials, like, you're going to have a baby or you're going to adopt a child or whatever. So there's a sense in which they know. And then there's a sense in which they absolutely do not know. And only when they actually become a parent, when they actually form this attachment relation to this other being, Will they both experience the change that's involved and also then in virtue of experiencing that change, understand the nature of that experience? So I could say more about that, but that's, yeah. that's, that's a big one. Well, it, it seems like a, these kinds of experiences pose a certain kind of challenge to rational decision-making because the decider, it's in advance of, of making the decision, you are one person. And then if you decide to have this experience, you will become somebody quite different. And you may, in fact, know that in advance, right? But you, you know that the person who will be judging the consequences of having made a certain decision will be different from the person who is deciding whether or not to take you know, one branch or another in, the, in that decision tree. And so to take the decision to become a parent as the example here, so I'm, I'm imagining that very few people ever regret having kids, even if the person they were before they had kids would have judged the outcome to be less than desirable, right? Like, I mean, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's something beautiful about that. Um, there's something beautiful about the kind of human 
psyche that allows that to happen. But let me let me back up for a second, if you don't sure. mind. So, so I think of it this way. So imagine you're thinking about, well, if you're deliberating about whether you want to become a parent. So for at least a kind of standard version of rational decision theory, there's a process you're supposed to undergo where you map out your options. You look at the different values, like the value of having a child, the value of not having a child. And then you think about, well, which option is going to maximize my happiness or my life satisfaction or something like that? And a natural way that we you think about doing this is you imaginatively kind of evolve yourself into, well, here I am with my baby, or here I am, you know, hiking the world or whatever, like crossing, you know, <laughs> crossing amazing vistas, child-free, you know, living my life mm. to the fullest and that kind of way. And then you have to sort of compare these, uh, these options to, to to decide because they're each one involves trade-offs and you can't do both which one's going to be better for you and the when i had said before that the the complex thing about transformative experience as i understand it is that first there's a dimension of the experience that you can't kind of grasp for yourself in addition to the personal change that you just described there's a problem because then you can't reliably you know envision the self that you're going to become or and understand the process that's going to make you into that new self. So if, you know, if you're sure you want to become a parent, well, maybe it's not such a big deal. You know, yeah, as you said, you know, you'll be happy most likely afterwards. We should come back to that, by the way, because mm. there's something really interesting and tricky about that, I think. But if you're not sure, then what are you going to do, right? Like you can, and you can then go and get evidence, like find out about, you know, what other people have said and done and ask your mother and that sort of thing. But that evidence is all about, you know, what people think after they've gone through the experience. But if they've changed as a result of going through the experience, then there's a certain way in which that evidence is not relevant. If you're not sure, say you really don't want to have a child or you, you're kind of inclined against, and you go and you ask your, your mom and she says, oh, no, you'll be so happy if you did. You might think, well, fine, but that's because my brain will have been changed. Like, I'll, you know, I mean, I'll be changed into a different kind of person. You know, it's like, I'm somehow mentally kidnapped and mm. sure I know that parents are really happy but I don't want that kind of <laughs> that kind of mental magic worked on me. I'm very happy the way that I am. And so that's part of the problem. The self that you are who's trying to evaluate these things first maybe doesn't have the same desires as the self that you would become and you can't even kind of imaginatively put yourself in the sh- in, in the shoes of that other that other being, that other self that you could become to kind of evaluate what it would be like. Mm. So you're kind of stuck. Yeah, now that I think about it, I'm wondering if regret is also rare and perhaps even equally rare on the side of the people who don't have kids exactly. and who haven't had kids by choice, right? As opposed to just a kind of a failure of opportunity. There are obviously people who really want to have kids and it just never happens for one reason or another. But there are people who decide they don't want to have kids. And I guess I would imagine they experience probably a vanishingly small rate of regret as well. I don't know if there's right. any research on this, but so what, how do you think about regret in light of, or, or its absence in light of this? No, it's a great question. So I think for me, what I immediately think of is, is regret, what is the regret or absence of it evidence of? You might think, oh, if you don't regret your decision, that's evidence that you made the right decision for you. Yeah. And there's a sense in which that's true. Maybe you made the right decision for the self that you are. There's maybe a larger sense in which it's kind of incoherent to say, I made the right decision for me because there's the right decision for you afterwards and there's the right decision for you beforehand. 
And so like when like, so, okay, so I have two children. I love them both. I remember my mother saying to me, wow, I never really expected you to have children. I wasn't really sure early on. And I said, well, I'm so happy. But, you know, is my happiness the result of me knowing all along I wanted to have children? No, it's actually that the process of forming this attachment relation to both of my children made me so like satisfied and happy to, to have them. There's a kind of circularity here that's absolutely what some of these experiences involve. So, of course, I don't regret it for a second. But there's no way I can even access the person or the self that I would have been if I had never had children. And I think she also might have been perfectly happy to live her life the way that, you know, the, the way that she had chosen for it to go and yeah. would think, oh, you know, I, I, you know, who she is or, or would have been wouldn't have been happy with children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're even stranger. So th- this is pretty easy to understand. And it, I think it's, there's a, whether in fact it's a real fundamental change in what one values and, and one, one sense of what is good, or if it's a psychologically protective mechanism of just not wanting to admit in the case where, where one would still re- could regret this life decision, mm-hmm. given that it's mm-hmm. irrevocable and that so much turns on one's kind of averting one's eyes from the dark reality that you, you in fact do regret having kids yes. or not having kids. You know, it's easy to see why one would, wouldn't want to be keenly aware of that moment to moment. But there, there are simpler cases where we experience a, um, actually we can experience the, the full tour. So you take something like, you know, eating ice cream, right? Where you, you want to be on a diet, you want to lose weight, you don't want to eat ice cream. But when presented with ice cream, you actually want to eat that ice cream. And so the, the person uh, whose willpower is overcome and who decides to eat ice cream and who's enjoying the ice cream while eating it, <laughs> gets to experience the full tour of of not want you know, having the sort of the meta desire of not wanting to want the ice cream, wanting it, enjoying it, and then later regretting having eaten mm-hmm. as much as one ate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, a strange picture of what the self is and what personal identity is all about when one experiences that full tour. But that's different than the transformative. I mean, you're, it's a transiently transformative experience. Maybe that falsifies yes. the concept, but there, one, one can experience this fluctuation between being the person who is inhabiting a, a kind of a higher order desire, and then, then the person who, you're the person who gives in to a lower order desire, which nonetheless is sincere in the moment, and its satisfaction is no less pleasurable. But then after the fact, one boomerangs back to the, the higher order desire and, and wishes one hadn't done that thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think that the way to maybe pull these apart a little bit is, is to say, I want to focus on whatever like the highest order values are, right? And so the ice cream case, it might be that there's a difference between like all along, you kind of wish you weren't, you know, that you, you don't want to be someone who's eating the ice cream and then you kind of give in and you eat the ice cream and it's fabulous and you're really enjoying it. And then afterwards, once the enjoyment is over, it's like, oh God, <laughs> why did I do that? That would, might be a bit different from, say, someone who is like an, an addict, like, an, like someone who's in the throes of an addiction might have something where even like their higher order valuing, you know, involves like wanting the, like the willing at someone who's just like in, embracing their drug addiction versus someone who then later on rejects the appeal of the drug. There you might actually get someone who all of their values, their highest order values are consistent with their action. 
And that that might be in a, in, ca- in a case of someone kind of transforming and transforming and transforming in the sense that in the, in the way that I'm trying to articulate for maybe more m- minimal cases. I mean, religious experience might be one of those cases where somebody converts or loses their faith. And so, and that's, I think, is a, is a transformation. And then they can revert. People sometimes do revert. And I think mm. there, if, you know, if you're fully believing or fully not believing, then, you know, you're kind of consistent up and down the, the hierarchy of values. Mm. How do you think about this in terms of knowledge and belief and just epistemology? So we have the experience of changing one's beliefs in response to evidence. But many of us have an experience of deciding not to entertain certain ideas or, or expose ourselves to certain images because we have prejudged that you know either it's a waste of time or we actually don't want to become the person we would be if mm-hmm. we spent all the time exposing ourselves to that information. I mean, I'm thinking this. I guess this can be an expression of cognitive bias or wishful thinking or, or cognitive closure in a way, but it can also just be an expression of, of a concern for mental hygiene. Like I, the, the instances where I know I've done this is, uh, I recall I, I, I mean, at the time I was very focused on issues of terrorism and, and religious sectarianism and its consequences, and, and yet I decided that I didn't want to see the decapitation videos produced by the mm-hmm. Islamic State. Right? I was mm-hmm. super focused on the issue. But I just decided I didn't need those images in my head because I was protecting myself from being the person who then had those images in his head for the, the rest of his life. Yes. There are other cases where, you know, if I have to take a certain medication, I will decide that I actually don't want to study the list of side effects, right? Because I've, mm-hmm. I've decided generically that, that I need to take this medication. I, I know in the abstract that all of the side effects are are a low enough probability that, that I'm not likely to suffer them. And I, I think I'm better served not actually, you know, priming the nocebo effect in my case and just being on mm-hmm. guard for the side effects. So perhaps there are other examples of this sort of thing. How do you think about deciding to have certain information or not and the ways in which this can either be productive or or go awry when we, we're actually closing ourselves off to evidence and ideas that, that are true and would be useful to know. Right. So, I mean, I think there are, there are appropriate times to right, protect yourself from, let's say, having a cognitive bias in the way that you are, you know, these, these images and other kinds of things, which are in, actually intended to manipulate in various ways. The connection to transformative experience is that if the problem is if if you can't actually, so when you think about like, I don't want to see an image, a particular image, you know enough about it to know how you're going to react and to know that, well, actually it's the, the effect is going to be negative. So you make, I think, a good judgment to, to set that aside so that you're not, you know, you're not affected by it in a negative way. But what if you don't know about the nature of the experience? It could be great or it could be bad. And there's no kind of higher order evidence that's going to tell you either way. This, I think, can be a way to understand questions about uh, religious belief, because there's no sort of independent way of ascertaining whether or not the deity in question exists. And those that are advocates of, of the belief will argue that the evidence is all around us. It's just you're failing to detect it. And those that are opponents of the belief will say, no, there's no evidence, right? 
And then if, if the way to being able, learning how to grasp that evidence involves opening your mind to the possibility of having a, an experience, but where you as the, like, would, you know, fear that this experience could corrupt you, then you have a problem because you don't know about the nature of the experience independently. And to discover the nature of the experience involves a kind of corruption. It's basically Ulysses and the Sirens. Mm. I think the nice thing about for Ulysses was that the insanity that he experienced when hearing the Song of the Sirens was temporary. But in this kind of case, it wouldn't be temporary. So you have a problem. So that's what I, I mean. So what I'm saying is I think it can be perfectly rational to set aside evidence, so-called evidence, and per- perfectly rational to try to control various kinds of options when you know enough about them. But I'm really interested in cases where we don't know, and mm. the because it's transformative, it can kind of work on you at the highest level, right? And transform the way that you regard the nature of reality, for example. That's I think I think psychedelics involves that possibility. I think religious belief involves that possibility. I think possibly certain kinds of love could involve that kind of possibility. Maybe even questions about the border of sanity and insanity, which is kind of mm-hmm. a fascination for me. So. Yeah, there's one, uh, as a social phenomenon, I'm noticing the consequences of conspiracy thinking and, ha- and, the, and the social contagion component of that, and also the kind of quasi-religious aspect of sunk cost with respect to having just spent so much time down any one of those rabbit holes. I mean, I see people whose <laughs> you know, podcasts or newsletters or books just become a testament to how much time they've spent entertaining certain ideas. And it's, it seems like it's becoming harder and harder for them to step out of it because, again, they, they, in part, it's got to be the, the fallacy of sunk cost or the, the perceived reputational harm of recognizing that they've just wasted a tremendous amount of time on certain topics. But it's also just the style of thinking that gets inculcated there where none of them are, are truly falsifiable. There's a style of connecting random anomalies without an underlying theory that is coherent. You know, it's just, and you can always find more anomalies. So it just, it becomes mm-hmm. self-perpetuating in a way that is, that is very difficult to arrest. And so, yeah, it's, it could be rational to decide in advance, okay, spending my time and attention in a certain way could erode some of the, the epistemic values I actually want to be anchored to. And so you, you do have a, a Ulysses and the mast kind of decision in advance, where it's like, yes, there's, there's a siren song that I may want to hear, but if I'm going to hear it, I need to at least maintain my purchase on something now that I know, I, you know, as a kind of meta, a meta norm, I, I'm going to want to stay attached to no matter what happens in the, in the intervening hours. Yeah, but the the problem is, I mean, I think that sounds right. The problem is, what if the siren song is so seductive that you lose yeah. your attachment to that? Med- I mean, that's the risk. Yeah, I take it the conspiracy theories are often, that the whole idea is open your mind to this possibility. And then what happens are pe- is that people lose, they lose a kind of control over the other norms of thought that they had embraced. Yeah. How do you think about empathy in this context, or just, just taking the perspective of other people? Or, you know, or failing to? I mean, just what, what, mm-hmm. how, does it, how does that fit in? No, it's a good question. I think with a lot of the things that I like to think about, I think there, there's a lot to say on both sides. I do think that affective empathy, so just feeling what others feel, is a really good source of cognitive bias. And 
Yeah. Paul Bloom has written on this, I think, really, really well. Yeah. But that's different from cognitive empathy, which is, you know, technically, I guess, is, is a kind of empathy where you aren't just kind of randomly opening yourself up to the feelings of, of, of others, but rather in a kind of reasoned way, you attempt to kind of enter into the perspective of the other and attempt to represent their beliefs and their emotions and, other, uh, and their, their, their mindset, but without kind of losing yourself in it. Again, though, the kinds of problems that we're talking about, I think they're right here because if you really are opening your, your, your mind to someone else and really are kind of empathizing with them, even if you know, you're trying to do so in a kind of cognitively careful way, I see the possibility for losing yourself in that. And I think that does happen sometimes to people. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, kind of an adjacent issue for me that I've, I've resolved very much in, in, in the way that Ulysses resolved his problem with, um, with philanthropy, because I just know that the kinds of causes that really tug at my heartstrings are not the kinds of causes that tend to survive a, a truly rational analysis about how you can do the most good in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's really, they basically don't even overlap. You know, the, the causes that, that I can rationally identify as the most efficient and reliable ways to mitigate human suffering or, or needless death or long-term risk, those are almost without exception less compelling to me than any cause that has a you know a single identifiable victim and a, you know, a good story and and something that just really drives my my altruism and, and compassion circuits in a in a very you know you know social primate sort of way so even the class the classic example here is you know one little girl falls down a well we have endless interest and, and availability to pay attention to that. We, you know, the CNN does 72 hours of continuous coverage of the story. But, you know, at the same moment, there's probably a genocide raging in sub-Saharan Africa, and it's just a matter of statistics, and, and nobody cares, right? You can hear about 500,000 dead, and it's just too boring to even allocate 10 right. minutes in a broadcast right. to. So just knowing that, you know, I, I just decide in advance to give to the causes that that I can rationally identify, and then anything I give to other causes that are that are more compelling emotionally, I, I just do that over and above what I've allocated in advance to the the rational ones. So it's it is a sort of have your cake and eat it too strategy, but it's uh, you know I've, I have the the rational priorities front loaded in in that paradigm. So I I agree with this, but I wanna I wanna say one thing, and that is that. In these kinds of discussions, I think it's really important to see that the rational calculus needs to include the value of experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it can be the, th- the thing. So I agree with what you're saying. It's just that sometimes I think people can think about a rational calculus in a kind of robotic way, one might say. And I mean that in the sense of like, take AI, which is not sentient and, you know, lacks any kind of like uh, feeling or, or consciousness. You know, you could perform a mathematical calculation one that doesn't account for the feelings and experiences of the human beings involved. Your example was great because it's like the experiences of one little girl versus the experience of, you know, 500,000 or whatever. I don't remember the number mm-hmm. that, you, that you mentioned. And obviously, then we're comparing experiences to experiences. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's really important to not remove the human element from the rational calculus. Yeah. Because otherwise it becomes like a mathematical calculation versus a kind of gut emotion and I just don't think that's the right, that's a false opposition. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's really that in both cases, 
there's an enormous amount of pain and suffering. It's just that we can comprehend the smaller amount in a way that we can't comprehend, right. like can, you know, can't comprehend infinity in certain ways as well. We can represent it, but there's a way you can't imagine it. And that's just a limitation of the human brain. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's just a, an acceptance of that limitation in advance. Because mm-hmm. I, what, I, what I noticed is despite my efforts to make doing good psychologically and emotionally salient, I think we, we run up against the, a, an intrinsic limitation to that because, you know, so much of our doing good philanthropically is by definition telescopic, right? Like you, you write a check and you send it to an yeah. organization that's doing the work. You have yeah. no face-to-face encounter with any of it. And yet it is, it is just, in fact, real that that check and the organization funded by it is doing the, the best work, say, that can be done on, on that particular front, and that your giving to that cause really does matter. And yet, I just notice in my day-to-day life that the thing that is going to brighten my day is not going to be sending a check of whatever size to right. the, the best possible organization. It might just be this random and altogether brief encounter with a, with a stranger in a coffee shop, right? I mean, literally, mm-hmm. like, I mean, the, the example I've used before is, I, I did actually notice this in the span of 24 hours in my life. I noticed that just like holding the door open for a stranger at a Starbucks and just you know, sharing a mutual smile was more important in the psychological change it created in me than having given you know a, a rather large donation mm-hmm. to an obviously good cause within the same day, right? So, and right. yet I know I did much more good in the world making that donation than than holding the door open for somebody. But given that th- th- these are just sort of bugs in our in our psychological and moral makeup, um, this is the kind of thing that Adam Smith pointed out. You know, where he said that you know if someone knew they were going to lose a tip of their pinky finger the next day, they they wouldn't sleep a wink that night mm-hmm. for you know, ruminating on it. But if that mm-hmm. same person heard that an entire generation of people was annihilated by a, an earthquake in China, you know, they might give it just a, you know, a few minutes thought and then move on to what, what they're going to have for dinner. That, so it's just that mismatch is something that I think we just, if we can change it, it'd be wonderful. But we just if we can't change it, we just need to figure out how to navigate around it and do the most good we can on the one hand, but also be as happy and you know, and, and flourish as much as we can psychologically and socially on the other by whatever uh, means uh, govern that process. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess I, 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 I think that's right. It's the, the trouble is that there's this gulf between the kind of concrete, the concrete exchange with another human being that we can have that involves the way that we experience and feel. And then the much more abstract kind of good that we can do that propagates, propagates through like a, a long causal chain mm. where there's no kind of direct contact with any of the human beings. And I mean, you're right. There's, you know, if we're, if we're looking at how much good one can do and we think we can measure that from our feelings, or if we're also just looking at what's going to motivate us in various ways, there's a mismatch there in, in, either, in either case, right? Like it's, it's hard to detect how much good you're doing in the experiential sense when there's a long causal chain between what you do and then the final output when the what some percentage of that money makes it what its way to the intended recipients and not only that but you don't get to you don't get any kinds of you don't feel it right mm-hmm. like there's no kind of direct exchange whatsoever 
I mean, if you were confronted with the people, right, you know, that, that would be an entirely different kind of experience and an entirely different kind of exchange. Yeah. And knowing that it might be wise to have the transformative experience of leveraging that change, right? So like, for instance, I can be telescopically philanthropic. I can just write a check to help solve a famine in some distant country, or I could decide to get on a plane and just confront the the reality of that famine face to face and write the same check, but also be the person who had the experience of witnessing these human events directly. Mm-hmm. I can know in advance that that would be that would be much more impactful, and it would be a much closer marriage thereafter when I was you know when I was writing a check, my connection to the good I was doing or intending to do would be would be much more salient having met the people or some of the people right. suffering from that right. calamity I, yeah can I make a connection here? yeah, so we're talking about causal chains between ourselves and other people, but part of the work that I've been doing is is saying that, look, just as we can understand there are all these problems in it with our relationships with other people, understanding how they feel and act and think. And again, these kinds of sometimes long chains of causes and or events between us, that same kind of structure can exist between yourself and other selves, both past selves and also future yeah. selves, or even merely possible selves. So some of the things that you're raising those problems, I think, are reflected back into even like individual lives. Can you say more about that? How, how do you how do you think about one's relationship to one's past and future selves and and possible selves? Well, so think about something that you're doing now. It's going to have through a long chain of events, most likely an impact on the future Sam, maybe ten or fifteen years from now. And there's a sense in which that's a very remote effect, right? In fact, mm. we do things like we throw our future selves under the bus all the time. Like when you agree to do something unpleasant for someone, if they're smart, they're going to ask you to do it like in the future, maybe six months from now, yeah. rather than six minutes from now. Because when it's six months from now, that future self just seems quite remote. It's like, it's like those people on the other side of the world, as opposed to the person, you know, the self that's going to be existing six minutes or yeah. even six hours from now is much closer. Although I must say I'm getting much better at saying no to those things. <laughs> I actually now consciously think, okay, th- if this thing were, were happening tomorrow, would I be saying yes or no? And if, if the answer is no, it doesn't matter if it's six months or six years, I'm going to say no to it at this point. That's the right thing to do. Yeah. So that's like navigating it. But, but you see that the, the, the point is that the closeness or distance, like we rely on, on, on what we kind of experience and feel and project a lot of times when making decisions. And what you realize is, oh, wait a minute, we shouldn't rely on that. Yeah. Or at least we can rely on it if we can model it in the right way to give the right response, as opposed to kind of just neglecting that difference. Yeah, well, so we're, we're not strictly rational with respect to how we discount the importance of our future states of self, because I mean, there's nobody who has a greater opportunity to ensure the, the happiness of your future self than your current self does. I mean, you really mm-hmm. have just a, an enormous amount of control over your future health and your future ha- and, and your future wealth and your future happiness, your future relationships. And yet, you know, it's all too common for us to hyperbolically discount the significance of all of all of those effects and to have a, a, just a, a much shorter term concern for our pleasures and pains and just what we value over, over time is just 
as you say, it's, it's just very hard to think about oneself 10 years hence or mm-hmm. beyond that. One thing that's really interesting is like, I think that when you think about yourself 10 years from now, you think about it yourself differently from if you think about yourself 10 seconds from now. It, it feels different. Like, so if I think about myself 10 seconds from now, I'm going to imagine, I don't know, maybe like, you know, I might have a sense of how I'm feeling or I might imagine the scene like from my first person perspective here, like from what I can see. But if I like, you know, from a GoPro camera kind of uh, vantage point, but if I imagine myself 10 years from now, I think of like, it's like I have a camera on the situation and I can see myself there like performing some task, but that's like, I'm observing myself. I'm not occupying the perspective that I'm in right now. It's mm. rather that I, there's this kind of distance that's encoded into that representation. And I think that's really weird and really interesting. <laughs> mm. And I think it affects the way that we, that we think about things. And it might come back to, in, there's, I think there's a relationship there between what we were talking about before, which is when someone's, like, someone's pain is like, very close to you, you're in pro- like it's in proximity with you, you can understand it and make sense of it and respond to it in a way that you can't when there's this, like, it's like you're viewing it through, the, you know, through a telescope or something. Do you recall Derek Parfit's thought experiment about um, that meant to uh, highlight the strangeness of future bias? He talked about somebody who, who um, found himself in a hospital either awaiting surgery or recovering from surgery, and, and the mm-hmm. nurse couldn't tell him whether or not he, he had had a, yep. an extremely painful surgery or would soon have a, a more normal surgery, and she had to go look up his chart. Do you, do you remember this thought experiment? Yes, yes. Yeah. So what's interesting there, I, I recently spoke about this on the podcast, but maybe I'll, I'll just revisit it for those who didn't hear it. Because I, I can't, as with many of Parfit's puzzles, I'm not always sure whether it's, it really is a puzzle or whether it's a kind of pseudo mm-hmm. puzzle, but a little bit like Zeno's paradoxes of motion. But, um, you know, here he, w- he seemed to be remarking on how arbitrary it seems that we care so much about the future and so little about the past. And it, it might be more strictly rational simply to care about all of our experience in the aggregate, just like the whole area under the curve of mm-hmm. phenomena. And and to be timeless with respect to how we how we weight its value. And so the his thought experiment here is that you know someone is is in a hospital, they just woke up, they're not sure whether they are going to get a surgery or have they they've already had it and they don't remember it. But the two surgeries on offer is you know one of two things is possible. Either they had a an absolutely harrowing protracted surgery that. Um, they don't remember because they 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 were given an amnesic drug afterwards. So they they were they were in fact tortured for ten hours, but their memory was wiped clean. But they they did in fact have that lived experience of torture, or they're going to have a a more normal uh, operation in the future. And if if you had asked them on the previous week, which would you rather have? Let's say they the present moment is on Tuesday. If you'd asked them, you know, the previous Friday. You can be tortured for 10 hours and have this awful experience and then have your memory erased, or you can have a normal procedure with normal anesthesia. Which would you want? Well, they, they absolutely want the normal one, let's say on Wednesday, uh, rather than the torture on Monday. But if you wake them on Tuesday and they're given a choice of either having gone through this thing they can now no longer remember, which was bad, or they have they yet have this uh, more normal but still unpleasant procedure in their future. Well, they're going to want they're going to wish they had the thing in the past that was awful and worse. 
because what people really care about is happiness or suffering in the future. It's enormously more important what's coming rather than what's、mm. in the rearview mirror. And he thought that was kind of weird.、Uh, I'm not. I, I, yeah. What, 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 do you, what do you think about that? So I hate to say it, but with all due respect to Derek Prefet, I think he was kind of weird. I、mm. mean, he was brilliant. He was a brilliant philosopher. But okay. So I have views about this. And so what I what I think is that there's this kind of objective perspective that a metaphysician takes, where they're just looking at what exists. And if you're interested in the value of a life, and you think of it as,、um, and you can calculate it in terms of the area under the curve, where you collect up all the kind of temporal stages of that life, and what ma- matters is maximizing that area, then this kind of detached perspective, where it doesn't matter if that temporal stage is in the future, or in the past, or in the present, is fine. But if you have a view where it's not just those objective facts, but rather also the kind of subjective conscious experience of the observer. Which is just because of the way the human brains work, we're immersed in our present, and we we anticipate the future, and we feel that the past is fixed and over in most cases, and so we value things differently depending on where they're arranged in time.、Mm. And that's I think that's just a fact of human psychology. Even if there's an objective way to justify that, there's the contingent fact about how we experience the world. And so, as I was saying, as much as I love the Parfit. Exploration. I feel that regularly he was kind of a detached person,、mm. and he didn't really care about this immersed, asymmetric, and yeah, not kind of objectively rational way of experiencing the world. But it's just a, it's just the way we are psychologically, and that I think should be accommodated. So if you do that, there is definitely a future bias. And actually, A. N. Pryor,、um, when he talked about、um, the nature of time, was、um, he had a famous example of called about a headache when you say, "Thank goodness that's over." And the example was intended to illustrate how we feel differently about the present versus the past. Yeah, we would be glad that the painful experiences in the past rather than the future. And so, part of what I guess I want to say is when we were talking about rationality and decision making, I think it's really important to not lose sense of the maybe bizarre psychological contingencies of how we, as thinking and feeling human beings, you know, experience the world, and to、mm. bring that in somehow to. Into the rational calculus. Well, this does sort of relate to this notion of a transformative experience because, so when you think about many painful experiences, even most painful experiences, there is this common feature, which is once they're over, the net result isn't necessarily even negative. In many cases, it's positive. You have the people who、mm-hmm. go through some. Terrible ordeal, you know. You know, they they have cancer and then they they recover and they can on, honestly say that the cancer is the best thing that ever happened to them because、yep. it reoriented their priorities and they got their lives straight and their and their their heads straight and they couldn't have done it but for having had everything interrupted by what what was in fact a truly terrible experience while it was happening and yes, so they they're not in a position of regret. Uh, or you know, wishing it it hadn't happened once it's over, and if we can know that about most bad experiences, I mean, if we know that generally speaking, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, shouldn't that change how we view most future bad experiences? I mean, shouldn't we be able to price that in and 
Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be psychologically helpful to try to do mm-hmm. that if if insofar as we mm-hmm. can do that? So it's a good question. I mean, I do think that we should be able to price it in, but I think it's more complicated, which is I know unsatisfactory, but I'm a philosopher, mm-hmm. so I'm always like raising problems. That's my, mm-hmm. And so here's the I'm fascinated by cases, for example, of of disability. So I think it makes perfect sense for someone to let's say someone has as they have cancer, they have a terrible accident. They undergo this horrific transformative experience, like transform, like because, and in the sense that the person who emerges or the self that emerges is is quite different from the self that began. And I think there's a very sensible way in which someone can say the self that emerges. I value who I am now. I have all these strengths that I I I didn't have before, but I just I value who I am now, and so I don't regret having the experience because that experience produced me who mm-hmm. I am now. By the same token, I think it can make perfect sense for the person, for someone else to say, I don't want to have a horrific accident. I don't want to be diagnosed for can- with, with, with cancer. In other words, the self that someone is before they undergo the transformative experience can also value who they are. Mm. And, and so- And, and you, you, don't, you don't think one of them is right? Well, I think that's where the problem is. I mean, sometimes I think you can say one of them is right and one of them is wrong. But you know, take- Take you know, going back to the having a having a having a child case. I actually don't think either of them is objectively right. I don't think there's an objective fact of the matter. I think each self, say there's the self that doesn't want to have children, and then the self that has had children and is very happy that they did. I think each self can glory in their own set of values and can and and you know I think it's can can respect their own values and say the values that I have are the ones that I want to have. Okay, and that there's just no objective fact about which set of values is better, like the one the, the childless person versus the person who never who, who, who's who's a parent, or the person who's never had an accident versus the person who is. I, there are there. I mean, we could step back and say the person who had the accident maybe they're living a better life in various ways, and maybe they're you know they have a kind of larger measure of happiness. But to tell someone that they should act against their values as long as they have respectable values, I think, isn't really something that we should be doing. Mm-hmm. What about the possibility of changing one's values deliberately? I mean, this is something mm-hmm. that we we can do inadvertently just by you know the ways in which we get educated or miseducated, the type of company we keep, the, the sorts of practices we do. But yeah, I think we're at some point going to experience a much more direct and intrusive opportunity to change our values. I mean, we you know if you just imagine directly changing. The brain, if uh, insofar as we ever arrive at something like a completed science of the mind, you would be able to pose the question: Well, do you do you want to value X as much as you do, and might you want to remove that value? You know, are mm-hmm. you are you happy being as compassionate as you are? Would you want to be more compassionate? You want the you want the Dalai Lama's version version of <laughs> compassion, or would you would you like to be a little bit more of a sociopath than you are? And be super productive. You know, I mean, you're just you, you. You can have the the optimal CEO sociopathy implant, and you'll care less about the consequences of your decisions. But you'll make those decisions, uh, you know, far more efficiently, and you'll sleep peacefully mm-hmm. at night. And all that. So, if we can decide these things, we would be making these decisions knowing that opting for a certain change would change the very basis. Upon which we would judge the goodness of the change, right? I mean, you're, you're, you, if what's eventually on the That's menu right. is changing your intuitions about good and bad, then you 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 can ask in advance, well, would it be good to do that? All the while knowing that 
the standard by which you would judge its goodness is the is one of the one of the things that is that can be changed exactly yeah yeah this is okay so this is what i mean for me this is fascinating but also very murky territory and this is the the territory of transformative experience as well right there's this kind of it's an endogenous change basically that changes the very thing that's sort of at issue and i don't I, you know honestly i just don't think a lot of times i have very good answers to any of this i'm trying but you know you take somebody who again go back to disability someone who has a disability and says look i value this disability it makes me who i am i think that's perfectly rational and yet we can step back and say would it be good to eradicate you know somehow you know without eradicating any people but somehow make it so that um nobody ever suffers from this disability again yeah. in the future and there's a way i say well Obviously, yeah i yes. can see how that yeah. would be great yeah. Yeah, yeah and so and so but the thing is that these two things i think they seem to be in conflict and there's a sense in which they are in conflict and i don't think that there's a simple answer it's a bit like you know because at at some level when the questions get kind of high level enough you can get kind of a deep kind of incommensurability and there may be no possible way to make room for the obviously valuable person who's living a valuable life with a disability and who's who fully you know engages in and enjoys their life even if they include some pain or or suffering or whatever many of us have pain engage in pain and suffering in all kinds of ways right and value what we're doing like from difficult exercise to having children which involves a lot of suffering i will say mm-hmm. um but it's a lot you know but i i embrace it versus um having some kind of i don't know like perfectly i don't know cleansed is not the right word but like something that's just in some simple sense maximizes all of you know minimizes pain and suffering and maximizes all all the values that we want to value i just i think there might be an incommensurability there are they actually incommensurable or is it that the judgment of the goodness of of certain states of the world is based to some degree on the knowledge that it can't be changed in that case. So you take the some you take the case of somebody who's disabled in, in one way or another and believes that they're a better person for it and they wouldn't they, they, they wouldn't wish it any other way, yet they're not in a situation where it can be wished away. If they were in that situation, I think we we could discover that, you know, basically everyone who is currently in a wheelchair and feels that that it has improved their character uh, and life experience in in all kinds of ways they don't regret they would they would want to be able to get out of that wheelchair if in fact it was we could wave a magic wand and give them the ability to walk mm-hmm. again and the and the feeling that they wouldn't is in some way anchored to the fact that it's not currently possible and well, I, and I, okay, I guess okay. an analogous slightly different but a similar issue around parenthood is that you know if you're somebody who is actually in a position to recognize that you're less happy than you think you otherwise would have been as a parent. Mm-hmm. You can't, one of the barriers of admitting that to yourself is is not wanting to be the sort of person who wishes his or her kids didn't <laughs> exist, right? You know, it's like, that, that, that's so awful. So. so I think some people, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of people in the world. And I think there, you know, some people who maybe whatever state they're in as as parents, if they were able to compare themselves to who they would have been without, you know, without mm-hmm. the children, if, you know, believes that they're less less happier, that there's suffering involved in a um in a way that they don't endorse. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a certain kind of cognitive dissonance there. There's a certain kind of not wanting to kind of tell yourself the truth. 
But I guess I think it's important if we take people. I want to use the case of having a uh, having a child uh, being a parent because that one I know I'm, I don't have a, a a physical disability, so I'm I, I'm not as knowledgeable there at all about the situation. Although I think there there can be a parallel. In other words, so here I am as a parent. I definitely suffer and give up much for my children, and there's something in the suffering I have to say, and something in the ongoing process of being a parent that is both part of who I am and something that I cherish. Mm. There's a kind of state one can be in where it's weird, but like the suffering doesn't matter as much. And I think for the person in the wheelchair, there are complications because it's life is just much harder for people who aren't, don't have kind of, you know, whatever the ordinary kind of mobility is that that most of us have. So there are certain complications that are just like external factors that make their lives more difficult that have nothing to do with necessarily them being disabled, but rather the rest of the world, like, you know, not accommodating their, their distinctive characteristics. But someone might say, look, what I'm saying is that the suffering that I've undergone till now and that I continue to, uh, to, to undergo is part of who I am. And I value it, even though it's a kind of suffering that sucks in a certain way, it makes me who I am. And admit that I, if they say that or something mm. like that, it makes total sense to me because I would say that as a parent. And that's consistent with like, if I had never had children, I would be living the life. I'd have so yeah. much more money. I'd have so much more time. I mean, and, and I thought carefully about having children and had no idea what I was getting into. And obviously I'm happy I did it. But like, you know, I mean, that other person, that other Laurie, that other self, she seems very remote to me, but I could see how mm-hmm. she would also be quite happy with her life. It's just different. It's just different. An incommensurable self. That's what I'm talking about with mm-hmm. incommensurability. Well, how do you think about <laughs> counterfactuals? Maybe that we can connect to uh, your other philosophical work here and, and, and your time studying with David Lewis and, and his really inscrutable notion of modal realism. How, mm-hmm. how do you think about possibility? I mean, one thing that I was talking about with Tim Maudlin is the possibility that possibility itself is a fiction, right? That, like that I, I was arguing for some version of, of actualism, the, the idea mm-hmm. that it really just, there is all, the, all that is possible is in fact actual, right? That, you know, whatever mm-hmm. is, is, and our notion that things might have been otherwise really is never other than, than a notion. And how can we rule that out? And so I guess maybe, I don't know if it's relevant here, but you know, feel free to explain the notion of, of modal realism and, and just how we think about possibility philosophically and, and what work it does. Because it really is, it's in light of, a, of our sense of what is possible. I mean, it, it can sound purely academic and, and metaphysical, but it's the sense that something else was possible that is the the, the foundation for a feeling of regret or disappointment mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, anything, you know, the, the mm-hmm. sense that things have really gone wrong in one's life is inseparable from the sense that they could have gone some other way. And if you don't have that sense at, at each moment, <laughs> you just have, okay, well, this is what has been, this is what is true now. And my sense that there's a range of future possibilities is just that it's a a landscape over of over which I'm trying to navigate, but in fact, in each moment, there's simply the next thing that's going to happen. And to spend any time regretting it or wondering about how it could have been otherwise is, you know, it, it may it may equip us differently to do something different in the next moment. But that's its only value, really. It's, it's not that it reaches into any any metaphysical truth about you know the coin could have come up heads. 
as opposed to tails. No, in fact, it's just going to come up the way it comes up in this next moment. Uh, so again, I, I gave you a lot there, but just tell me how you think about counterfactuals, possibility, and, and the underlying metaphysics. <laughs> okay, so I, will, I could talk for many, many hours, mm. but I won't. All right, so David Lewis was a modal realist in that he thought that all possibilities were real in the realist sense of real. And he talks about this in terms of possible worlds, where each possibility is basically a possible world, a, a world where that sort of thing was, could have been, or, uh, or, or is actually, in, in, in his parlance. I'm not a modal realist. I don't think that there are other worlds where there are flying donkeys or, you know, space aliens or whatever, you know, pick, pick your favorite entity. But I think possibility is real. And I think that it may be just a very basic feature of reality. I think, I don't want to speak for, I think Tim is probably more skeptical, partly because of his views about physics and also because of his metaphysics. But on my view, possibilities are real. And what we try to do is we try to grasp them through our imagination or through various kinds of representations. And we try to manipulate the world so that we can make something that's merely possible, especially if it's physically possible, make it actual. But in, in what sense does it, if it is real, what, how does its reality get impressed upon the actual? If it was possible just going to create a simple example here, but I mean, I, I, so I'm in the middle of a I'm in the middle of a sentence now, and it is going to occur, and I'm going to finish this sentence. However, I finish it, I, I know a certain number of words, but only a certain number of them are going to occur to me in the span of my trying to complete this sentence. And it is, in fact, true to say I, I think this is true to say of the state of my brain that not every combination of words is possible for me to utter now. It's mm -hmm. like, because it's, it's you, in the abstract, you could say, well, are you physically capable of saying all, any one of the words you know to say? Well, yes, I am. But only certain words are in fact going to occur to me in this moment, given the state of my brain. And if we could roll back the universe to precisely this moment a trillion times in a row, well, then I'm going to finish this sentence exactly as I am a trillion times in a row. And if, you know, if, if, if randomness is part of the picture, well, then just you can add the contributions of randomness. But still, that doesn't give us everything that I, quote, could have said, because in truth, only a very small subset of the things I could have said are in f or, or in fact possible now. And, so, and I, I guess it's not clear to me that what we're claiming is possible ever stood a chance of being actual, given that the actual is simply always what it is. I think if, if there's any sense in which you could have said something different, then you're capturing the sense of possibility that I want to endorse. There are real questions about like um, with physicalism and freedom of the will and stuff like that, that I'm not addressing here. I'm just saying, look, if we want to say, yeah, you could have said yes or no without having a wider sense of could where you could have uttered any word in the English language or something like that, because maybe you wouldn't have thought of various kinds of things. There's a kind of flexibility there. You could have said yes, or you could have said no, or you could have said a, or you could have said the, or something like that. And I think that that could is a real could. And so I think when we make choices, it's like we really can bring in something that's merely possible in, into actuality. And we do that causally. Isn't it a could 
I think I spoke to Tim about this. Um, this this brings it in kind of the in the moral dimension. This strikes me as a paradox. I guess it could be a pseudo paradox, but it it strikes me as strange when you think about the responsibility people have for uh, certain kinds of actions. I think there's a paradox in that the more responsible you make an agent, the less their failures to execute on that responsibility make sense, and therefore the less those failures say about them. So so the example I would give here is you have a golfer trying to make a very short and and therefore easy putt. So if if that golfer is a truly terrible golfer, well, then you're not going to be so surprised when he misses that putt because he's (laughs) going to miss that putt rather often. And you're not going to hold him especially responsible because he's a terrible golfer and this is how terrible golfers behave. (laughs) But if you make him the best golfer in the world, right, you make him, you know, Tiger Woods in his prime, and then he misses a putt that he really should make, you know, a thousand Mm -hmm. times in a row. And and he will Mm -hmm. make it a thousand times in a row if you set up the putt and have him do it a thousand times. But he misses it on this occasion. What's strange about this is that because he's you know, as close to being the perfect golfer as he can be, his missing the putt is, is just a pure anomaly, right? It's, it's this hmm. completely adventitious thing that says nothing about him. It's like there's, there's, no, there's, there's actually even no, there's no basis on which to admonish him because he's already a great golfer. It's like you can't, all you can say is, okay, well, you know, there, there was something wrong with the universe because he shouldn't have missed that putt. But so it's only in the kind of the uncanny valley between the total incompetent and the supremely responsible <laughs> person where we can effectively and, and accurately apportion blame. Like you have someone who's like a decent right. golfer, they generally make that putt, but they, you know, they didn't. And you say, well, Jesus, you really should have made that putt. And they say, yeah, yeah, I, I should have, you know, I guess I wasn't concentrating. And, and it becomes a kind of admonition to try harder next time, right? But it's, it's only in that middle space where it seems appropriate to apportion blame. And I think this migrates to the moral, the moral domain where you have someone who's a, you know, a total psychopath, you know, quintessentially evil. There's something wrong with their brain. I mean, they're, they're just not, they're the kind of person who is always going to mistreat people. And you, you, you might wish they, I mean, you, you might want to lock them up, you might want to kill them. But you're, when you think about it, you can't really say that they should have done otherwise, they could have done otherwise, because they, they have some version of, of brain damage that we don't totally understand. And at the far end of the continuum, you have somebody who's you know, truly impeccable. They're as close to a saint as, as we have ever met. If they do something awful, well, then our first thought is going to be, well, wait a minute, did they have a stroke or did they, right. they have a brain tumor? Right. I mean, like right. this isn't them. So it's only in the middle ground where we think, okay, this person really deserves to be punished because he, you know, he should have done otherwise, he could have done otherwise, but he didn't, and you know, we want him to rot in prison for it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just, it seems strange to me that the more responsible you make an agent, the more they seem to get, off the, get let off the hook when their agency fails. Well, I mean, I would say, right, if, if we hold to that they must have full control, then there must be something else that's gone wrong. As opposed to say, well, maybe they're not quite so talented after all, or maybe they're not quite so saintly after all. I mean, if the assumption mm-hmm. is that they have such f- complete ability that they have ultimate control, like a godlike figure or something, then we have to look to something else, 
right, to explain it. Or it just seems, but insofar as they're, they're as good as anyone can be, it just seems that if the move you just made of saying, oh, maybe they're not as good as we thought they were, well, then you're just mm-hmm. kind of dragging them back into this, mm-hmm. this middle ground of, okay, they, mm-hmm. they, they, mm-hmm. they weren't what they seemed. And so then we're just changing our view of them in the past, you know, that, which is what occasionally well, happens. But. Yeah, I guess I'm suggesting that if someone has ultimate capacities or ultimate control, and then this bad thing happens, then we have a choice. Either they don't have ultimate control or they don't have these, their capacities are not what they thought mm. we were, or we have to look to some other explanation for why, why the problem occurred. But I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying, that there's this kind of uncanny, like there's this, the only place of interest to be in is, is in that in-between space. Because the total incompetent or the total psychopath, well, they're beyond hope. I think they get blamed or they, you know, whatever, but you don't think that they, they have any capacity for making things better. And we're interested in, in assigning praise and blame where we think it would have an effect on, yeah, what an agent would be able to do or what would make themselves do. Mm. Can I say something about the regret though? So yeah. I think that something that is often needed for regret is this thought, well, I either could have done otherwise or I should have known better. Mm. So, you know, we don't, like someone who couldn't possibly have known that their actions were going to lead to some bad outcome, they can sometimes feel regret because there's something called agent regret where like you just feel bad about something happened. But it's not like they're kicking themselves for, you know, oh, if I just thought about that a little bit more, I would have realized. Mm-hmm. And I think that can be, I think that can be important in certain cases. So like the parent, for example, who maybe regrets having a child, I think sometimes such parents shouldn't feel regret because I don't think there was any way that they could have known how they were going to respond. And, you know, as you said earlier, most people respond with happiness and, and, and satisfaction. They, they transform in various ways so that they're happy to be in the situation that they're in, but it doesn't happen to everyone. Well, what do you think the, the normative form of regret is? Do you think people should never feel it? Or do you think there's a, there's a version of it that is psychologically and, and ethically indispensable? And how would you bound it? I mean, what, what is the useful form of regret? Right. Well, so no, I do think that, I mean, people should feel regret when they have been negligent, when they haven't thought things through, when they've been lazy or selfish or any of those kinds of things that, that, um, where we can, we can all be. But I don't think they should feel regret when they fail to anticipate something that they couldn't possibly have anticipated. Mm-hmm. Or when they couldn't have acted differently in, in any way. And I was thinking that was maybe related a bit to your case of the perfect actor in some sense couldn't, you know, they can't improve their abilities in, in any way. And so we can't, they shouldn't feel any regret. They did as, as well as one could do under the circumstances as, as, the best, as the best actor could do. In those kinds of cases, I don't think it's, it's appropriate to feel regret. I, think, I, don't think, I don't think it's necessary. Or even praise, I mean, on the mm-hmm. other side, like don't praise yourself either for being, if you know, if you have perfect capacities, then the fact that you kind of putted perfectly isn't really all that impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's also strange. Yeah, I mean, for me, regret to be normative and healthy needs to be forward-looking, you know, because you can't do anything about the past, but what you can do is be alert to similar circumstances in the future and mm-hmm. committed to behaving differently. If you regret the thing you said to your spouse, last time, and you, you recognize the reasons why you, you weren't able to find something wiser to say in the moment, well, the value of all of that is when, you, when you're in a similar circumstance in the future, you're going, to, you're going to see some landmarks you missed the first time around, 
and you now have a degree of freedom to behave differently. And uh-huh. so it's just, there's no, I, I don't see any utility in pointlessly ruminating about that thing you said or the thing you did or the thing you didn't do and feeling bad in the present over something that happened in the past without developing any new capacity to be better in the future. Really, the cash value of, of regret has to be that, you know, the good cash value uh-huh. has to be that it, it makes you a better person going forward. I see. So, um, I mean, I, I don't think people should feel, I mean, I don't want people to suffer in general. I think it can be rational to feel regret for having done something that you wish you hadn't done. But you're right that the best way to leverage that instrumentally is to only feel regret if you're going to be able to use it to, you know, improve events in your future. So I guess I want to distinguish between I don't I don't want people to suffer, so yeah, they shouldn't feel regret for doing something that they wish they hadn't, but it's perfectly rational for them to feel that way. But hmm. it's maybe well, like if we had a a no regret pill, right? If we had a pill you could take that would just wipe your your memory clean of maybe you might still re- remember the past, but you wouldn't feel regret over any of the the bad things you did or or the good things you failed to do. I, I'm wondering what would be bad about taking that pill. Like what what would we lose that we would want to actually keep from the normal course of our of our sense of our past failures? And I think the thing we wouldn't want to lose is all of the ways in which the scar tissue of the past equips us to be better in the future, right? If that, insofar as it does, if it, insofar as it doesn't, well, then it is just suffering in the present. Yeah. Although this is, okay, I think I must have, I think this must be part of my base nature because if somebody hurt my child, if someone killed my child, even if I knew that they were going to be imprisoned forever or would mm-hmm. never have the chance to, to, to do anything bad to anyone else again, I'm not sure I would not want them to feel regret. It's not that I want them to suffer, but I would want to, them to recognize the moral disvalue of their actions. But what do you think about those cases where we punish people for crimes and, and for harms they've caused, where it's absolutely obvious that this is a person who's never going to create a similar harm in the future, even if we didn't punish them, right? So you have the, right. yeah, I mean, the, the, the example that always comes to mind for me is the person who's texting while driving and, you know, winds up killing someone's kid. And we, so we already know this person is in hell already for having inadvertently killed someone's kid. They're not going to be texting and driving in the right. future. We've all texted and, and driven and, and just by sheer luck not hurt anybody, right? So this comes back to, um, I usually ascribe it to Thomas Nagel, but I think it was Bernard Williams mm. who came up with the concept of moral luck. It is, I mean, we, there's an argument for throwing this person in prison for decades simply as an, <laughs> as an example to set for others to, to keep other people from texting and driving. So it's just an object lesson. It's just a deterrence for the rest of society. But apart from that, there is something perverse about punishing someone we know is already suffering the torments of the damned for having been on the wrong side of the moral luck balance. And we know they're never going to do this particular thing again, right? So I, I don't know. How does yeah, that Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of punishment in general. And I think regret and punishment should come apart, right? Mm. I mean, I think sometimes 
maybe the concept is if you punish someone, that'll make them regret their actions when, when you know, or, or something, I don't fully mm. understand it. But you're right about moral luck. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating situation that we find ourselves in as human beings because, you know, you can do something wrong, like you can, yeah, run over a child or, do, you know, and sometimes through fault, but sometimes through no fault of your own and still you can do something wrong. And it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible situation, but you can also do something right. I mean, we get it on both sides of the ledger, yeah. right? Yeah. And may, I mean, for me, again, it brings out, like, sometimes there are things in life that are just, that they, that they don't add up. And I think some things in morality just simply don't, don't add up. And as I was saying before, sometimes there are incommensurabilities. And I guess my view is that sometimes what we can do as philosophers is kind of articulate the conceptual framework involved and see where things don't add up. And that's actually a good place to be in. It's a, a little bit like, okay, so I'm a fan of stuff about time travel. And I think it's really, when you watch a time travel film and it doesn't add up, that's incredibly frustrating, right? What's gone wrong? And sometimes it's just whatever, it's too confusing. But a lot of times it's because, in fact, the narrative is messed up. Like there was a coherent time travel story that could have been constructed with causal loops and being mm. able to meet your past self and being able to kind of affect what you do in your future. And they messed it up because it's pretty complex and they made it incoherent. Like they described something logically impossible or things, you know, whatever the timelines didn't, didn't line up in the right way. And I find it very satisfying to understand when things go wrong, why they went wrong. Oh, that's why, you know, there was a certain kind of, you know, back to the future. And like, no, the photograph doesn't like sort of, you know, start changing. Like, that's not the way to make sense of, of, of time travel. I know this is heresy because, mm. <laughs> but, you know, instead there should be kind of coherent, very, but very complicated storyline there, like you see with Primer or, or La Jete, which is a, mm-hmm. a beautiful old yeah. uh, mental time travel film. And so, and so with morality, and I'm not an ethicist because all those questions are so incredibly hard, but I think sometimes some of this stuff just, it's just not going to add up. And I don't think that there's one simple solution. I guess I'm, I struggle with the claim that these things are are truly incommensurable, or I, I, I think mm-hmm. a lot gets swept. I was under, noticing that you yeah. want it all to add up, probably. <laughs> well, well, it's just I, I, is it that there really is no place to stand from which two states of the world can be compared, and and one rationally judged to be better or worse than the other, or they could be non-equivalently. You know, they they could both be positively valenced to the same degree, but be different, and therefore, I guess, incommensurable in that sense. But we can still judge them. I mean, you know, I have this view of questions of, of right and wrong and good and evil to be laid out over, you know, over a moral landscape where there, we can easily imagine that there are multiple peaks and, and valleys that are, you know, equivalently good or bad, but they're also just different, right? And they're, I guess, incommensurable in the sense that you have to change, to, to be on one peak over here versus a, a, an equivalently high but very distant peak over there, you have to change so much about one's mode of lo- life and one's epistemology and one's sense of right and wrong and, and, and norms. And that it's just easy to, to imagine that, yes, there could be a, a planet where there, there are perfectly matched sadists and masochists living you know, perfectly happy. You know, they're, they're experiencing all the eudaimonia of the happiest you know, normal community over here, but their moral toolkit is so different that you know we, we we can't aspire to be those people, and yet we can recognize that by their lights, they're having a grand old time. But yes. but, that, that, but that's, that's not true. That's not incommensurable in the sense that we have to say there's just no way to compare 
these states right. of being. Right. Right. Yeah. I. I mean. I. I'm saying. I'm not saying that there's just no way to compare. It's. It's more that. And obviously, I think that we can make judgments of right and wrong, and it's not like that everything is incommensurable. It's just that there are certain places where we find ourselves. I think with yeah, you're on one peak, and there's another peak, you know, out there, you know, that's very distant. And to and if you were on that peak, there would be one set of judgments we would make, and over here on this peak, there's this other set of judgments, mm-hmm. and there are better and worse judgments on my peak, right? Yeah, it's just that there's a kind of failure of comparability across the peaks, and. That's a situation that we sometimes find ourselves in. Yeah. When we're talking about parenting, like the person that I would have been if I had had no children, I think would have been a happy person with a satisfying life. I'm a happy person now with a satisfying life. I just think that there are really different sources of satisfaction, and I don't think there's a straightforward way to make that comparison. Yeah. But yeah, but given this landscape analogy, I can then understand that these states of the world can't be there's no place to really compare the you know your current life to the counterfactual childless life and yet we can still make you know rational judgments about what it would mean in either case for either lori to be on a peak or to be sliding yeah. down this you know into a valley and be made less happy i mean there's there's still you know, kind of general exactly. claims we can make about the the landscape even though when you're inhabiting one side of it you're the different person for whom this is the only near peak. And and just to, just to push this, because I think it works. So imagine you're, like you're, you're standing back and you're surveying all the different peaks and you can look at the different ones and look at the different heights. But then imagine the difference in perspective if you were on one of those peaks. So you're in, virtu- in, like in kind of yeah. some kind of VR gear and you're immersed in this situation. That's a different point of view. Okay, so to go back to Thomas yeah. Nagel, you know, Thomas Nagel, I think, rightly said that the first-person point of view and the third-person point of view, in some sense, like, they just can't meet, right? There's a kind of, it's, it's the, and this is the kind of incommensurability I'm trying to get at. Yeah, so, but then what do you, when we take the third-person point of view on our own first-person experience, right? I mean, we, we, we can all, we, you and I can have the, the first-person experience of taking the, the view from nowhere uh, or the view from above and uh, judge our lives as though from the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that can matter to one or another degree. And we can course correct or not by, you know, having done that exercise. So it's, it's not that you're just a mere prisoner of your you know, first person GoPro camera attached to your own head view of your life. You can triangulate on yourself to some degree, and it, it can be useful ethically or, or rationally to do that. I totally agree. Although, remember when we were talking about taking on unpleasant tasks in the future? What do you have Mm. to do to triangulate? You've got to bring that possible future self within your first person orbit to be able to evaluate it the right way. See, that's the that's part of the puzzle for me. Is that we're not actually very good at triangulating from the merely third person point of view. This is just a like the way that our human psychology works is, and there are differences actually in um, in in the brain states that we engage that that you know, underlie these representations. And so you have to think about yourself as doing that unpleasant task in the near future so that you can fully appreciate mm-hmm. the dimension of the experience value. Right, right. So, um, well, all of this is fascinating. <laughs> I guess just a, a final question. How do you think you live differently, if at all, by virtue of having thought a lot about these issues? I mean, is there anything that you, you do differently in, in terms of making decisions or or yeah. um, I mean, how would you 
if you as a philosopher had focused on completely different questions, how, how do you think you're, you would be different? I think I'd be really different. So there are two kind of big things on how I live differently. First, when I've, I've had to undergo more than one transformative experience, like I found, I, I got divorced about five years ago, and that, mm. was a really, that was a transformative experience with good and bad elements. Very difficult, um, very painful. And like during that experience, I thought to myself, wow, you know, by my, I have my own theory and I'm, look, I'm living my life through my own theory. And, you know, how am I going to, how mm -hmm. am I going to learn from this? And honestly, what I, I tried to do all the things that you ordinarily do. Like I tried to hold on to, well, what are the heuristics that I know, like to try to live in a healthy way and keep myself kind of going and relied on testimony from other people, even if it wasn't especially helpful in some sense about how I would, you know, get through this and what it would be like on the other side and what was likely to happen to me. So there was a way in which I was sort of detached from myself, sort of observing all the things that I was trying to do to kind of manage it. And it's given me, I think, a new appreciation for some of those techniques. It also means that I'm less concerned about, how can I put it? I think I'm more forgiving of myself and others for making mistakes. Like, so that thing we were talking about with regret, because mm -hmm. thinking about how difficult it is to manipulate these life-changing experiences and how overwhelming they can be has given me, I think, more, maybe more sensitivity and more, I don't know, maybe more empathy for, for people who've gone through them. And I also think it was really important, just kind of pulling out, I did all this work on the nature of causation and thinking about the self in time and, well, and thinking about agents in time and how we experience causal interactions. And then I started working on transformative experience. And I found it, I find it really, really satisfying because I'm, I've spent a long time trying to, I mean, I was we were having conversations. I was kind of pushing on this and, I'm, and you have to forgive me for that. But it's like, I feel like a lot of times contemporary philosophy and epistemology and metaphysics doesn't make enough room for experience. And I mm. don't mean in some kind of squishy way or some kind of imprecise way. I just think that there are really interesting facts about human psychology that have normative philosophical import and that we have to take those seriously. And that, you know, there's a way to think about you know, phenomenology and human experience more generally and first-person experience and bring it into kind of the rational calculus in a way that maybe it hasn't been brought in along, in, I think, in some kinds of philosophical discussions. And so I found that really satisfying because the transformative experience work allowed me to try to, in a, in a rigorous way, bring in a role for first-person experience and decision-making and mm. self-construction and, yeah, self-understanding, I guess. Yeah, I've always been frustrated in, in when I read the literature on metaethics, and in particular the the pushback one gets against utilitarianism or, or consequentialism. People tend to leave out the the obvious importance of the consequences for experience, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like it's just it, yes. it matters what kind of mind you have. It matters what kind of intentions you have. The intentions you form toward other human beings, the the, you know, the, the thoughts you think, the phenomenology of being in the world, arguably it's, it's everything. I mean, the contents of consciousness, consciousness and its contents yes. are everything, right? So, yes. so the, the idea that you're going to resolve the goodness or badness of any uh, consequentialist calculus sheer, merely based on body count or you know, the, the financial tally of damages uh, it makes no sense. If consequences are what matter, the consequences go all the way into the first-person experience of all the minds involved. 
Exactly. It's like, it's like I have a real appreciation for the, shall we say, the logical, formal, mathematical side of, 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 of all of that work. But I think the other side of human experience has to be brought in too. Yeah. That's, basically, yeah. that's basically what the work on transformative experience is pushing. Nice. Well, Laurie, it's fascinating. Thank you for giving me a tour of your ideas. And um, just in closing, how, where can people find more of what you're up to? Do you have a, I know you have a website. Tell people what that is. And I guess my, my final question is, what are you working on now? Are you, do you have a, a new book you're, you're, uh, you're busy writing or what, what's top of mind now philosophically? So, yes. Yeah, so also, thank you for the conversation. It was really, really interesting and uh, really fun and also hard. You also mm. asked me a lot of hard questions. Mm. Thank you. So, right, I have a website. It's www.lapaul.org where I have um, my professional work and I also have some other things that have been written about me or that maybe I've written that are more kind of more for general interest or more accessible to kind of non-philosophers. And so that would be the place to go. I'm working on a book for Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It doesn't have a title yet because I think that's the last thing mm-hmm. I do, but it's on... Hopefully you won't have the transformative experience of losing your battle with your publisher over your title and having to <laughs> d- defend a title you don't like. Oh, you're going to keep me yeah. up at night now. <laughs> I would avoid that transformative experience if you can do it. But it'll be so meaningful. No, okay. Yeah. So that book brings together the work on transformative experience with understanding the self in time and possibility. Mm-hmm. So the kinds of, you know, I think of, I think of the way that we kind of form and reform ourselves and understand ourselves, both merely possible selves and the selves that we're going to bring into being as being sort of intimately related to the sorts of questions that transformative experience raises, like how do, how can I construct myself? Who am I going to become? And how can I make this decision if there are certain things I can't know about, you know, what I'm going to care about in the future? So um, I'm hoping that book will be done in about a year or so, and it's top of mind. Although I'd also do a lot of collaborative research on computational cognitive science, but that's a whole other topic. Mm. Nice. Well, I think we have more to talk about. So um, whenever the urge arises, let's uh, get another uh, list of topics and do another podcast because I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. I enjoyed it. <laughs>